Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Casey the Travel Planner. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in the Atlanta area. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in the Atlanta area. It is summertime. Folks are getting out, going for runs, going for bike rides, doing open water swims. Mm -hmm. So happy summer. Uh, This weekend is Memorial Day weekend. So the unofficial start of the summer with barbecuing and grilling and celebrating America. That's right. Right on. You have any big exciting plans for Memorial Day? Not so much. Uh, I'll be going to a friend's uh, lake house. We tend to have a bunch of family gathered there. It's a pretty relaxing day. Right so, on. Nothing right on. too much. It's always like the, the, the start of the year. It's a good time to reflect and build out a schedule for the summer, that kind of thing. Right on. Right How about on. you? Yeah, school's out. So so like this week, all the schools are getting out and all that sort of thing. And then graduation at my college was last week and summer semester started this week. Um so no big plans for Memorial Day proper, besides, of course, going to see the new Star Wars movie. Um, oh, I should have known. <laughs> how, how did I miss it? I know you're shocked. I know you're shocked. Actually, <laughs> it probably won't even be on opening weekend that we go to see it, because my wife's going out of town. So so once she gets back, we'll, we'll go see it together. But uh, looking forward to that. Chattanooga 70.3 was last weekend. You probably mm-hmm. saw. We had a, a lot of ITL athletes do that. Um, folks on my roster, folks on the... the, the Come to the track practices, folks that do the bike rides on the weekends and the trail runs on the weekends and everything. So, uh, lots of folks doing that. It was a hot day. Yes, it was. So, won by a couple of pros, Heather Jackson and Andrew Starkowitz. Andrew Starkowitz biked two, two hours flat on that, that course, which is a stunningly fast time. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, got hot on the run towards the end. And actually, a quick preview for next week, we're going to be talking about heat and running in the heat and uh, cycling in the heat. Uh, and racing in the heat uh, in next week's, next week's podcast. But yeah, congrats to everybody who uh, who, who finished the uh, the Chattanooga 70.3 last weekend. Um, are you doing any racing right now? I'm not doing any racing right now. I've unfortunately come down with a bout of bronchitis. So right now I'm just recovering from that. And then I'll start to come back slowly in June. Probably my first race will be like the Peachtree Road Race, that kind of a thing. Right How about you? I heard you did the... Uh... One and only Brookhaven Bolt five <laughs> K. I am sticking to my uh, to my dedication to continue to do races that I've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I started that uh, essentially at the beginning of last year in, in 2017. I said I want to make 2017 a year when I don't do any races I've ever done before. Um, and then of course I had this long break at the start of this year, and I've done two five Ks, and I have a trail race I'm going to do this weekend. Um, and they're all races I've never done before, and so uh, it's cool, it's fun. But yeah, I did the Brookhaven Bolt, which uh, was hilly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> very very hilly. Yes, um, yeah. When I, an athlete that I coach also ran it, and he lives in the area. Actually, lives on the course. And I said, I said, tell me a little about this course. And he goes, okay. So the first mile is all downhill, and then it's a rolling second mile, and then the third mile is all uphill. I was like, okay. And so literally, I was like, all right, downhill first mile. Here we go. Uh, we ran about a hundred yards and took a right turn and looked up a quarter mile hill i was like are you kidding me thanks for the intel buddy exactly (laughs) i was like this is not a downhill first mile it was a flat first hundred yards and then an uphill first mile not the same thing uh but yeah it had it had more than 100 feet per mile of of ascent which in a race is a lot um i mean for a run that would be a very hilly run yeah um and then in an actual race especially a 5k where a hill can just Oh yeah, kill your time. Yeah, for sure, for wow. sure. It, it, it favored me a little bit though, given that the hills were in the the, the back half of the race. So so all the the, the speed demons who probably go a lot faster than I can, who maybe weren't as strong as I was, so I was able to get away from going up hills. Mm-hmm. So so that was good. That was good. Um, we um, 
I got a little bit of feedback over the course of the past couple of weeks here on um, our podcast about Caster Semenya, um, and I was glad that we did. Mm-hmm. And because, like you and I said, um, it's it's kind of an ongoing issue. Um, it's an ongoing issue very broadly, um, and and we weren't looking to necessarily draw a conclusion to make really strong points about it, um, but rather just uh, kind of start the conversation or, or contribute to, to, to a much larger conversation inside the endurance community. Um, and um, so, so a couple of pieces of feedback I did want to mention. Um, the first one, um, uh, we somebody wrote to us and said, Michael Phelps' feet aren't that big. Um, uh, his feet are size 14. And so I looked it up. And interestingly enough, if you Google what size are Michael Phelps' feet, it pops up not to like a website. It like just tells you the answer. Yeah. So evidently people are, are Googling that fairly regularly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're size 14. So they're still big. They're still larger than average. The average shoe size in the United States is like 10 and a half for men. Um, and so, so he's a size 14. So they're still big, but they're not gigantic like we thought they were. Ian Thorpe, who we also mentioned, he has size 17 feet. Um, now, but that being said, he's 6'4", so he's much taller than the average uh, American. Um, he has a 6'7 wingspan. Most people's wingspan is the same as their height, whereas he has actually particularly long arms. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, he has the upper body of someone who's 6'8". Um, and so he has a long upper body and short legs. Um, and that means that he can not only be more propulsive when he's in the water, but it also means he has less lower body to drag through the water, which makes him more hydrodynamic, which is obviously pretty important as well. Um, I also looked up and found that he's abnormally flexible. He has abnormally large palms, has abnormally large hands, mm-hmm. um, and he has an extremely high lactate threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, yeah, we were wrong about the size of his feet, but the overall point was that he has some genetic advantages that are born in that predispose him to athletic success. Now, that's not taking anything away from his hard work and dedication. Um, I mean, clearly he has worked hard, 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 hard. You don't win 20-something gold medals in the Olympics. You don't win eight in a single game without a great deal of of dedication and hard work. And and grit and and mental toughness and all those other things, too. And so I don't want to take away anything from, from him as far as those things go. However... He does have physical attributes that that uh, give him a much greater chance of success than, than other people do, um, and I think that's a, that, that that's the overall point that I was trying to make. Um, and then in turn, I was trying to say that Kashyapa also has um, some of those those uh, some physical attributes that predispose her, along with her really hard work, mm-hmm. along with her dedication, along with her mental toughness. Uh, that she can then capitalize on to, to win world championships and, and, and win gold medals. Um, so that's kind of the point that I was trying to make. So even though we, we had the wrong size of his feet, I think the the, the overall macro point stands. Right. Um, and I still very much believe that. I mean, you have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. Um, not too much to, to add to what you already said, but simply, you know, to say that this is an ongoing conversation. And, you know, our point in the podcast was to kind of present both sides, so to speak, and to kind of present the stickiness of the issue to, like you said, open up the dialogue so that it is not a, you know, um, closed book conversations because this is an important discussion to have. It is a big deal in our community, not just for the elite athletes, but I think, too, for how we view athletes in general. Um, So that's really all kind of I had to add, so to speak. But appreciate the feedback. Always love the discussion offline, online, you know, outside of the podcast. So, you know, keep it coming. I've, sure. I've had plenty of conversations with folks at the track, at, at morning runs, mm-hmm. you know, not just kind of via email. And, you know, t- to me, it's, 
that's why we do this to kind of start a dialogue to start a conversation yeah absolutely I totally agree with you on that and 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 neither Patrick nor I are people who shy away from from dialogues and conversations and discussions mm-hmm. um, we got one of when we'll kind of end it with this um, uh, a lot of my um, outlook on this um, is informed by or is influenced by a book called The Sports Gene by David Epstein. Have you read it? Yes. Yeah, I have too. And and, and the macro point that he makes in that, that book is essentially the, the same point that I'm making right now, mm-hmm. is that, that, that we tend to, to really lionize athletes for um, their, their mental toughness and, and how they, hard they work, and they do. Right. But, but in addition, they, they have these, these physical attributes that, that make them uh, physical outliers, um, and those things predispose them to, to athletic success. I remember very vividly, I was looking around for the book, and I can't find it on my shelf for some reason, which bothers me. I think maybe I'll let somebody borrow it, and they didn't give it back. Um, but, um, but, but he talks about Joe Kim Noah. Yes, the the University of Florida basketball player who then went to play for the the, the Chicago Bulls, and then and and he has this kind of reputation, and he's often praised for being like this emotional leader on the team, mm-hmm. right? And and he he adds so much. He's he's such a you know his biggest strength is his emotional, lead, and that's the reason why. And and he says something to the effect of, yeah, okay, if you mean that 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 he's. Um, that he has kind of middling ball handling skills and, and that, that, that he's a little bit clumsier than some people, then yeah, you might be right. But if you're trying to say that that's the only attribute he has, you're ignoring the fact that the guy has a 6'11 wingspan. Um, right. and, and, and he has all sorts of other things. And that, that he's the, the, the son of a world-class tennis player. Um, that he has all sorts of physical attributes that, that yeah, okay, so his emotional support and, and the, the spirit that he provides to the team is super important. But he's successful. He's an NBA basketball player making millions upon millions of dollars a year mm-hmm. because of his physical attributes. Right. Um, so uh, another another listener wrote, um, and she, she references sports gene. She put, um, I agree with that, but I think it's even bigger than what y'all said. Uh, you read the sports gene. I recall that book profiling a cross-country ski champion who was virtually untouchable, and his secret weapon was his naturally heightened blood re- red blood cell count. The systemic nature of that is perhaps a stronger parallel, and the narrative around it was not so judgy, but that he was brilliantly lucky to have chosen a sport so suited to his genetic gift. Quite a different narrative than that around Semenya. Moreover, there are other variables that predispose athletes to stronger performances, such as natural VO2 max or trainability of VO2 max. My point, said the listener, is that these things are usually celebrated, not persecuted, and it's pretty crappy for a panel of dudes to be telling this woman that she's not woman enough or that there's something wrong with her, unquote. And I, I think that summed it up pretty well. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and to, to another point, too, it, it's interesting because um, this is something I did not bring up last time, but I thought about after the podcast. So, and, and this is a bit sticky situation, but, you know, we talk about, well, you know, we don't want her... I think the rule is something like we don't want our testosterone level to reach a certain level. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that was originally banned in men is because that meant you were taking steroids, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's interesting to even think about, well, why do we even say no steroids in sports? Mm-hmm. And the real, to, to me, the real crux of the issue is not that it's unnatural. I mean, now we wear shoes that they didn't wear 100 years ago. Now we have supplements and nutrition and running services they didn't have 100 years ago. The real problem is it... If you create a situation where the athlete has to take steroids to compete, you're almost forcing them to put their health in danger. Right. That's really what you're doing. Is it's right. you're asking the athlete to not become bigger, stronger, faster, but you're asking them to be unhealthier. Right. 
Um, right. Yeah, they're, they're, and, they're, they're subjecting themselves to all the side effects of the drug in order to even take part in the game. Right. And, and, that, and that would filter down to the college level, to the high school level, to the junior high level, um, which is, you know, literally if you, if you, if you make steroids legal... It would it would get junior high kids using steroids, right? And then the, not the, okay. <laughs> and then to bring it back to Castor Semenya, by asking her to take hormones to lower her level, mm-hmm. we're almost asking her to do the very thing we were trying to ban originally mm-hmm. by banning steroids, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good point. I mean, we're, we're we're asking her to change her physiology, right? Um, and that's that that just that feels very wrong. Um, um, Alright, well, let's talk about some other news real quick. Uh, are you talking quick or am I talking about news? Today, uh, you, th- this you, week is news and research week. We should have said that at the outset, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're opening, you're opening us up with uh, the Iron Man news. So, yeah, well, so, so let's talk a little bit about, about, about Iron Man. So, um, something that, that, that not enough people inside the triathlon community recognize is that Iron Man is a corporation. Yes. Um, and so folks will, a lot of times will get Iron Man tattoos and all that sort of thing. And, and that's actually a corporate logo. Um, and I'm not, you know, bashing people for getting corporate logos. Um, but, 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 but Iron Man, they market themselves not as a corporation. They market themselves as almost like a nonprofit that they're helping you, you, you lift yourself up and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and, but it's a corporation. Right. Um, and, and they were sold back in 2009 to, to, to one group, and then they were actually bought by this Chinese conglomerate called uh, Dalian Wanda uh, in 2015. Um, and under this Chinese conglomerate, who also has a big stake in AMC theaters and I think is one of the largest private, private property developers in the world, um, they've just started reaching out to more and more and more and more things. Um, and in the United States, uh, Iron Man has been um, a little bit criticized, not a little bit criticized, a lot criticized, um, because what they tend to do is um, they tend to, to either buy up or kind of corner the market in certain places, such as like mom and pop triathlons or smaller triathlons, mm-hmm. just can't really compete and survive because everybody wants to do the Iron Man branded race. Right. Um, and, uh, and they've also gotten a little bit of criticism. They've gotten better about this for kind of like making every t-shirt for every race exactly the same. Um, like when I did Ironman Wisconsin in 2013, the shirt was the same and the backpack was the same that they gave you as you know part of your Spencer swag. It was the same at every single race on the Ironman circuit. In 2015, when I did the Chattanooga 70.3, the shirt was the same at every single... It was a slightly different color. Yeah. It was the same t-shirt at every single Ironman 70.3 in the United States. And so you know, they... they, they, they have been criticized for kind of like overly standardizing things um, and being more focused on money and, and, and making the courses print maybe a little bit easier than they need to be in order to try and maximize the number of people on course. Um, and, and, you know, some of the stuff that, that some of the conversation we had around, around Ironman Texas um, online a couple of weeks ago, which we talked about, you know, a couple of weeks ago in our news and research, um, that, that they've been criticized a little bit because of the drafting and people were like, well, you know, that's, that's the athlete's fault. Yeah, but... If you separate the athletes out a little bit more and you make not a pancake flat course and and you have fewer athletes on the course, the drafting won't occur as much. But if you're making your decisions based upon how many entrants you're going to have, then you're going to make an easier swim course, you're going to make yeah. a flatter bike course, and you're going to pack as many people onto it as you possibly can. Um, and and that's kind of what they did. So anyway, so so it was it was like it was like design design induced cheating, design induced drafting, if you will. Right. Um, but anyway. Um, and so, so the news about Ironman this week was that they acquired a new race, um, and it's a new type of race. Uh, they acquired a race called Ultra Trail Australia. Um, Ultra Trail Australia is the second largest ultra race in the world. 
and it's the most popular and most prestigious, prestigious ultra race in all of Australia. And it's a fairly well-known race, certainly inside endurance circles in Australia, but even outside of endurance circles, it's a fairly well-known race. Uh, they have 6,000 people that do it over four races, which... 6,000 people in an ultra race? What? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing. I mean, uh, so they have a, they have a, a four days of races. They have a 100-miler, a 50-miler, a 22-miler, and then they have a kid's run. So what, what ultra have you ever heard of that has a kid's run? Um, but uh, but anyway. Yeah, well, I want to know what kid is signing up for that. <laughs> it's like one kilometer or one oh, mile okay. or something like that. Yeah, but, but still, to, to actually have a kid's run um, as part of it. But uh, 6,000 people take part in the four races over the course of those four days. Uh, and uh, Ironman has now bought it, um, which means that in addition to, of course, all their Ironman branded triathlons and all their Ironman 70.3 branded triathlons and cycling events and, and some running events, you know, they bought competitor groups. So, so now they own all the rock and roll races around the United States. Um, they're now branching out into the ultra world. Um, and so for better or for worse... You know, Iron Man, the company, continues to get larger and is now branching out into to, to a brand new field. So we'll kind of end up seeing what happens with that. Um, trail runners, um, by nature, tend to be a little bit iconoclastic. Very much so, yes. And, and, and they tend to be um, critical of, of, of attempts to standardize um, the, the experience. Um, and so we'll kind of we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on what the reaction is inside the trail world, and and whether this you know super giant trail race, this very influential and very large trail race, a very historic and prestigious trail race in Australia, ends up changing as a result of of coming under the Ironman umbrella. Um, yeah, and that's interesting because you know at, at first glance, you know my reaction may be, oh, I don't want you know a a giant corporate conglomerate to kind of take over the the sport I love or the kind of the community I love, and you know, I think one of the things a lot of us love about endurance sports is that it's kind of an escape from our more buttoned-up work life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the kind of half, the, or the glass half full aspect of this is, this just sh- you know, whenever there's a huge amount of money to be made, a corporation somewhere is going to scoop it up. <laughs> um, so really, this is all more a sign that this is a sport that is growing. Mm-hmm. It is huge. Even if, you know, you feel like you go to your family reunions and people are always asking, like, what are you running from? Why are you, you know, cycling so far? Um, so I, I, I think there is some serious potential here um, for improvement in that, it, you know, one, if it, a big corporation is always going to be very critical of anything that doesn't make money. Mm-hmm. So that means they're going to try to pump in a lot of resources into these races, mm-hmm. which can be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also shows that there is real growth potential. People who, you know, sit in cubicles and probably have, sit in giant office buildings looking at this stuff for hours have decided, hey, this is a a large community that is growing not only in, in power and influence, but also in money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that can certainly be a good thing. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I have kind of mixed feelings about it. Because on the one hand, you know, I don't really appreciate the standardization. Mm-hmm. Um, um, although I will say Iron Man is very good at putting on a show. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you go to an Ironman branded race versus a non Ironman branded race, I mean, it it feels different. Ironman puts on a show; they make you feel like 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 a rock star, and that matters. Um, that does matter. Um, and and related to that, and and this is it's always going to kind of fold back to this for me. If that gets more people active, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Yes, you know, um, if, if that gets more people into sport, if that gets more people hitting the trails and 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 signing up for races, I think that's a good thing. 
Um, I think that benefits us not only as individuals, but I think that benefits us as a society because I believe in the enriching benefits of endurance sports. So, yeah, so we'll see. Agreed. <laughs> and, and we talked about, you know, putting it in this podcast, we talked about, you know, the kind of grind it takes to train for a big race like a Boston, like a New York, like an Ironman Chattanooga. And, you know, that is not a very sustainable model if you're training for a race that doesn't have much pageantry. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, it's certainly good because it does help encourage not only more people to participate, but for those to participate, to give that little bit more effort, yeah. you know. Absolutely. When it's cold or hot, etc. Absolutely. Um, speaking of hot, um, once again, kind of, uh, I suppose, presaging what we're going to be talking a little bit about next week, the Peachtree Road Race also announced that they're going to change their start time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll just kind of mention this real quick. They, uh, they're backing everything up uh, about half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they announced it in their little Peach Bites newsletter, um, which I didn't receive for some reason. I, I just read about it in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, who's a title sponsor of the Peachtree Road Race. Uh, for those of you who aren't in the Atlanta area, the Peachtree Road Race is the, the world's largest 10K. has about 60,000 competitors now mm-hmm. um, on July 4th. Um, and this is, I think this is going to be the 49th running, so next year will be the 50th Peachtree Road Race. Really? Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll have to break my no race I've ever run before in order to run the 50th Peachtree Road Race. Um, but uh, but massive road race, um, and it's hot on July 4th in Atlanta, needless to say, and it's humid in July 4th in Atlanta, um, and so they, they, they've made it a little bit cooler. I do wonder, um, last year at the Peachtree Road Race, I, I took part in the wheelchair race. Um, I, I was in the push assist division. Mm-hmm. Um, I pushed Justin Knight um, in, the, uh, in, in the, the wheelchair race. Um, and uh, a couple of other uh, push assist racers were there too, um, and a few other. And uh, we had to start prior to the, the start of the running race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we had to run a particular time in order to be kept on the course and not be removed off the course because if the running racers catch you, they'll pull you off the course. Right. Um, and so I do wonder how starting at half an hour earlier is going to affect the wheelchair races, the wheelchair division, the push assist division. Because you can't start them a whole lot earlier because it's dark. Um, That's a good point. So, so um, that that will remain to be seen. And did they ever mention a motivation for starting thirty minutes later? Heat. Heat. Okay. Earlier. Um, heat. Um, it's entirely heat. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, that's at least what I read. I didn't read the whole thing in Peach Bites because I didn't get it. But in the AJC, it said it made a joke to the effect of of uh, it's not getting any cooler on in Atlanta on July fourth. Ergo, we're going to start thirty minutes earlier. So yeah. And I got to tell you where that really makes a big difference. It may not matter so much to folks who actually start at, uh, was it 7.30, the original race yeah, time? Yeah, so w- the women's wave, is first women's elite wave is going to start at, at 6.50 now. Right. And, then, and then wave A is going to start at 7. But the people that really affects are people starting in waves, M, N, O. Oh, yeah. A, because those are the people that probably are less accustomed to training, probably less trained, mm-hmm. probably more susceptible to overheating. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones starting much, much later in the day. Right. Yeah, it's and, hot by then. And as we know, you know, running in Atlanta, there's a big difference between the heat at seven thirty, eight o'clock, and nine o'clock, ten o'clock. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can really make or break a race or a training run. For sure, for sure. That's one of the big difference. I, I relearned that lesson yesterday when I went out for my run here, you know, in, in late May at, at at four o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, Oh yeah, it's hot now. Oops. Um, it was terrible. Um, but uh but and that's actually in addition, that's to me. I've always said that's one of the big differences between running and triathlon, mm-hmm. um, and and open running races is that in triathlon, you miss that coolest part of the day because you're swimming and riding a bike. Right. <laughs> and so, so the run is going to be a hotter run. Period. Um, and and um, it's just kind of something you have to to expect when you go into a triathlon. 
um, it's going to be super, super hot, particularly if you're doing a long course triathlon. It's going to be super, duper hot by the time that you actually begin your run. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get it done by, by 10 o'clock in the morning because you probably might, won't, will not have started by 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, what's your news? Yeah, and to add one more quick point about that, um, it kind of ties back into your original point about your original story about you know Ironman expanding. Mm-hmm. And that as we tend to grow as a sport, as a community, we're going to have to take additional measures to, yeah. you know, accommodate more people. And not just more people, but more types of runners, yeah. more types of endurance athletes. For sure. Um, and this could be one of them where we have to start races earlier, mm-hmm. maybe have more of a staggered start, things of that nature. So it's interesting. Um, yeah, but kudos I, to yeah. the Atlanta Track Club for being proactive and and kind of not falling prey to the, well, we've always done it this way mentality, but instead saying, all right, how can we make this better? We've done it 49 times in a row, mm-hmm. but let's see if we can make this time even better. I agree. I agree. Yeah, we'll see. You know, Ironman, um, in the last couple of years, they've made their 70.3, their half Ironman World Championships. They've separated the men's race and the women's race into two separate days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was sort of an interesting change. And I wonder whether... Um, you know, could you ultimately get to a place where you're like, you know what, we need to separate this event. It's the same event into two separate days. I mean, whether that could potentially become a norm. Right. Anyway, I'm totally thinking out loud at this point. Tell us about your news. Sure. So my news is focused on the USA Road Half Marathon Championship. So kind of a big change in uh, discussion here. Right on. Um, So those were run a few weeks ago in Pittsburgh. Um, Alephine Tuliamuk won the race. Um, Sarah Hall returned from injury to finish second, which might have been... you know, one of the more impressive, you know, uh, performances of the race. Rochelle Kana, who finished third. And then the person I want to focus on for this podcast is Gwen Jorgensen. Um, previous subject of uh, podcast discussions. Finished fourth. <laughs> almost a full minute behind the winner on a relatively challenging Pittsburgh course. And more impressively, almost a full minute ahead of fifth place. So she was kind of stuck in no man's land for a little while there. Um, but just to give folks a bit of a refresh, Jorgensen is transitioning from being a, tro- a pro triathlete to being a professional runner. Um, she was the first Olympic gold um, athlete for the United States in the triathlon at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. And then in 2017, she announced she would be switching her focus to marathon races with her sights set on the Tokyo Olympic Games. The, so she's, the, the gold medal at the Tokyo Olympic Games. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> so she's really a fascinating figure for this podcast, specifically because we talk about triathlons, we talk about marathons, we kind of trade barbs, you and I back and forth about what's harder, running a marathon or running triathlons. Um, you know, so she's really a fascinating, uh, you know, case, so to speak. And I personally find her fascinating, too, because I just grew up in the... I was a child of the 90s, so I loved Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, Michael Jordan, all these people who tried to, different sports, so mm. it's kind of an interesting taste, test. But back to this race specifically, this was a huge fitness test for Jorgensen um, on her way to the 2020 Olympics. Um, it wasn't necessarily her debut, but it was her chance to kind of show what she's been up to and how her fitness has been now that she's training with the Bowerman Track um, Club and now she's a Bowerman Track athlete. Um, as for the race itself, um, Tuliamuk took out the race hard, um, so she kind of ran away with it in many ways from the beginning. And this is and this is Tuliamuk's ninth title, correct? Ninth U.S. title. So I mean, she she's she's the real deal. And then she went out a week later and won the won the U.S. twenty five k championship, and so which was her, I guess her tenth. But but yeah, so she's the real deal. Correct. So going. no surprise with her victory there. And as I kind of mentioned it before, the real one of the big you know, takeaways or one of the big victories from this race, in addition to Jorgensen, was Sarah Hall, who is coming back from injury, 
um, Rin, honestly, much stronger than I expected. And looks like she could be a force to be reckoned with. I mean, when you think about it, her body was physically broken just a few short months ago. And now she's finishing second in the championships in a rather grueling race. Yeah, and she actually was closing in that last mile. She only ended up finishing about three uh, three seconds behind Tillyamuk, um, uh and was catching her. Um, and so, so a very strong finish from Sarah Hall as well. So Sarah Hall, who won the uh, the U.S. championships in December, the U.S. marathon championships in December. In Sacramento, right, yeah. at CIM. Yeah, yeah and, and you bring up a good point, too. Watching kind of the live stream there, I, I got the feeling that if the race were 15 miles instead of 13, <laughs> Sarah Hall would have won. Yeah. You know, obviously that's, you know, you know if and buts. But it, she definitely was finishing strong. Um and she's kind of had an interesting career because, in, in many ways, she's been kind of consistently underrated. Um, you know, she was supposed to run Boston earlier this year, but was injured. Um, she had a lot of hype coming out of college at Stanford, and then in some ways was overshadowed by her husband Ryan Hall. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Uh, but she has been a phenomenal competitor from events ranging from the steeplechase to the half marathon and even the marathon, um, but never has quite had that victory lap, that New York City victory or Boston victory, et cetera, mm-hmm. to kind of hang her hat on. Um, but it was a great performance for her, um, and it looks like she'll be somebody who, who will be a force to be reckoned with when looking at the potential 2020 Olympic athletes that we send um, to Tokyo. So you have Sarah Hall, who's had a long career and is a, is a U.S. marathon champion and is a fantastic runner. You have you have Alephine Tillyamuk, who is a, a now 10-time American champion and, and a brilliant runner. And Gwen Jorgensen gets beat both by both of those and says on Twitter afterwards, I really thought I was going to win this race. Yeah. We need, we need to contact their PR department, I think. Um, but but this, is, this is why it bothers me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like, you know what? You, you shouldn't have gone into this race thinking that you were going to win. Um, she didn't say, I thought I was going to win this race. She said, she said, I really want to do better than that, is what she said. But, I mean, that's to me the same thing. You want to do better than fourth? That means you wanted to... You wanted to what you want to finish third? No, you want to finish second or first, and so you want to beat the, the, the those two people who are very well established and very accomplished, and who are also great runners. And and hey, newsflash, Gwen, who work as hard as you do, right? Um, and so so yeah, I I, 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 I continue to be not a gigantic Gwen Jorgensen fan, um, and and I appreciate the fact that she's she's you know that she's going for it, um, and and I, I appreciate that, um, but at the same time. Just the whole thing to me just drips of, of her not really appreciating her competitors, but uh, which I think, and I know a lot of folks disagree with me on that. And that's fine. Yeah, uh, and that's actually an interesting point. You know, it, it, in other sports, I feel like um, we kind of like the the brash predictions from athletes. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case in the running community, or in probably even the triathlon community as well. And I think it stems from the fact that. In running, in in triathlons, in many ways, victory is not a zero sum game, mm-hmm. right? So, for in, you know, in other sports, for the home team to win, the away team has to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our sport, we are very much brought up in a community where you and I can both run the same race, and we can both reach our goals, mm-hmm. even if we're on different teams or we're we're, we're different competitors. Yeah. And so that kind of those kind of predictions, those kind of that kind of uh, statements tend to rub us the wrong way because we do tend to be a very communal sport. Yeah. And you're going to talk about some research around the communalism of the sport here in just a minute. I know. You know, um, uh, Chris McCormick in his book, um, Chris McCormick, two-time Kona champion uh, from Australia, 
he talks about how he rubbed people the wrong way a lot mm-hmm. um, early on in his career because he was also very brash like that and talked about who he was going to win and that sort of thing. Um, and and he kind of said something similar in the sense that that's just not a part of traditional endurance sports. That people no. don't 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 talk a lot of smack and 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 aren't real brash about those sort of things. Um, and I, and I, I think you're both probably right about that. Um, um, but yeah, I, 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 I probably still need to continue to, to reflect on it. And a couple of listeners have, have engaged with me on online and helped me reflect on it a little bit more. Um, but to me, that at, at bottom, for her to talk about how she's going to win, she, she has to beat everybody to win. She didn't say, I want to run a 225 marathon. If she would have said, I want to run a 225 marathon, I'd be like, awesome, that's great. If she would have said, you know, okay, this is this is a, a step along the way to my 225, or I don't feel like I'm quite as far along as I need to be on my way to 225, I wouldn't be so critical of her. Right. But but the the fact that she's entirely basing, you know, her her success or failure around who she's beating, to me that just feels really and and, and given the fact that she's she's come into tri- come into pro running from from having she's like a newcomer to pro running. She's mm-hmm. not a newcomer to running, but she's a newcomer to pro running. To me, it just feels it just feels disrespectful of all the people who've been here all along, mm-hmm. you know. And and that and that that that's what rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, is that 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 she's she's kind of she 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 believes as if she's she's some sort of she's 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 working harder and she's tougher and she's more talented than everybody else, and she's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I do think she's super talented. I do think she works super tough, super hard. I do think she's very tough. But but to me, for her to talk about how she's going to beat everybody. Feels as if she's suggesting that she's more talented and tougher and, and works harder, and I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so that, that's kind of where the disrespect is to me. Yeah, um, it's creating a zero sum game instead yeah. of engaging in the no yeah. sum game. Yeah, which is engage having time goals, things of that yeah. nature. Yeah, so so anyway, we'll see. Um, um, and maybe I'll come around. <laughs> yeah, but that's what makes this, you know, being a fan interesting. Yeah. Um, back to her individual performance, as you, as we talked about, this race is simply a stepping stone on her journey to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, I would say I am more bullish on her chances after this race. Mm-hmm. Um, just to speak, kind of, you know, about the performance itself. Yeah, actually, the one that, that's another thing too. Is actually, I thought this was this is a far better performance than I think a lot of things we've seen from her. Frankly, absolutely, uh, and, it's and, definitely and, more impressive than her fifteen fifteen on the track. And, a few and weeks yeah, ago. oh for sure. And then, but then, but then she gets beat by a couple of people who should beat her, mm-hmm. um, and who do beat her, and and she's like, oh well, this wasn't a very good performance. Right. No, this was a good performance. You should be, you should feel pretty good about this. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, oh well, no, a couple of people who who I should be beating are beating me. You shouldn't be beating those people. Yeah. You need to recognize that that the fact that you finish close to them at this point is is really good. All right, I'm starting to get a little fired up, so you, you keep talking. I'm <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> you know, to kind of also talk about the kind of the coach's perspective, one thing that's interesting is, so Pittsburgh was an awfully hilly course. Mm-hmm. Um, most of her races that we've seen up to this point have been on the track or on a flat course. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the Olympic distance she's raced, even on the triathlon level. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the runs she's, she's had, most of the races she's had on the international level have been on flat courses, whether right. it be you know, uh, races on solely on foot or triathlons. Yeah, because they tend to be in cities, and they tend to they need to be close to bodies of water. Yeah, and so the, those those places are flat. Correct. Be, at least. But Pittsburgh is hilly, and as listeners of this podcast knows, Atlanta is going to be an awfully hilly course. 
And she is a taller, leaner runner. She's not a power runner, which, you know, tends to mean she's probably not going to be as good at hills um, comparatively. So it'll be interesting to see how she develops. I know she's doing a lot of training in Utah and Colorado with the uh, Bowerman Track Club. They're doing a lot of training at altitude. So it'll be kind of an interesting component of her journey to see how she transitions to a bit more of a power state. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. I think, you know, in, in speaking for myself, when I transitioned from a lot of triathlon running back into open running, one of the things that I found that I struggled with was uh, responding to the nuances of a race, be it hills in a race mm-hmm. or be it be it somebody speeding up in a race or something. Um because I I become very accustomed to triathletes kind of get into that one zone mm-hmm. and 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 they hold it there they keep it there. Now she was doing ITU, which is different, yeah. uh, and that's more like 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 a like a road race. But um, I, I do wonder whether whether she will whether she will be affected by having to try and and start varying her pace mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, to to kind of running at a at a, at a steady level of effort. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll see. We'll see. Um, all right, want to talk about some research? Let's do it. All right, you first or me? Uh, you first. All right, so I uh, I did I, I, I happened across some pretty interesting research here that's from a couple of years ago um, um, from a, a, a journal called Frontiers in Physiology, and it's by a couple of researchers in the UK. Um, and uh, it was about deception and pacing in triathlon, and you know, kind of continuing the trend of having extremely long and very descriptive journal article names. This one was called The Influence of Mid-Event Deception on Psychophysiological Status and Pacing Can Persist Across Consecutive Disciplines and Enhance Self-Paced Multimodal Endurance Performance. That is phenomenal. <laughs> Who wrote that title? Charles Dickens? You would Jeez. Think. But actually, I, I like the title for a wide variety of reasons, not the least of which is that it tells you the conclusion in the title, um, but also it uses things like self-paced multimodal endurance performance. Um, but anyway, multimodal basically means... I bet the authors triathlon. of this study are just a blast to talk to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, um, that, but but so what they did is they, they they wanted to do some research on on um, pacing in multimodal endurance events such as IE triathlons, um, uh, and so there's already some research as the, out there that going too hard on the swim in a triathlon can slow you down overall um, in a sprint triathlon. This is all about sprint triathlons, uh, and so sprint triathlons they tend to vary in distance, but the overall like the the the, the general um, uh, distance is about uh, 750 yards of swimming, 750 meters of swimming, right? So 0.75 kilometers of swimming, um, about 20 kilometers on the bike, so about 12 to 13 miles on the bike, and then a 5k run. So, so that's about the typical sprint distance. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're talking about when we say sprint, and it varies from race to race and from venue to venue and all that sort of thing, as triathlons tend to do. But that's about what we're talking about here, right? Um, so anyway, there's already some research that going too hard in the swim will slow down your overall time across the entire sprint distance triathlon. Which makes intuitive sense. Yeah, it does. And and um, But it's important to keep in mind because, you know, if, if you if you swim that 750 as hard as you possibly can, it's going to slow down your bike and it's going to slow down your run. And, so, and, and that highlights the challenge that ultimately led to this research is that you have to, in a triathlon, over the course of the event, you have to, to meter out your energy. Um, right. And that's something that triathletes really struggle with, particularly triathletes that came from one of the three individual sports. Um, 
so there's already some, some research that going too hard on the swim will slow you down overall. Um, there's also research that suggests that going too hard on the bike will slow down your run, but will lower your overall time. And again, this, hmm. is, in a, this is in a sprint triathlon, and so, so it's different in long course. In long course, if you go too hard on the bike, you're going you're gonna to slow down your run, but you're going to slow it down to such a degree that it's going to bring down your overall time. But Which a, makes sense because it's a longer trajectory. Right, right. So I mean, it's right. a longer race, longer and, run. Yeah, and, and, and the, difference between, the difference between running in an Ironman, like when things fall apart in an Ironman, you're walking and stopping. Right. Whereas things fall apart in a sprint, you're slowing down a few seconds per mile. Right. right, and so so your overall time. But anyway, so so going too hard on the bike in a sprint will slow down your run, but it's going to lower your overall time. And then there's also evidence, there's also some research, that if you deceive people on the run, they'll go faster. And, and you'll recall that's actually, this is sort of Alex Hutchinson's go-to uh, anecdote with his new book, is he was running a race, uh, a 1,500-meter race, um, and the person who was yelling out splits was yelling out the wrong splits. They just said the wrong splits. Um and he ended up running faster, even though he had the wrong splits. He's like, I'm having the race of my life. Oh, this is fantastic. And it, and it made him go faster. Um, but there's some evidence, besides just his anecdotal evidence from that one time that he ran, um, that if you deceive people, if you tell them the wrong splits, if you tell them the wrong power output, they'll actually, on the run, they'll actually go faster. They'll actually run a little bit faster. Um, so what they wanted to do is kind of combine this together and say, okay, well, what if we deceive people on the bike how's that going to affect their bike, and then in turn, how is that going to affect their run? Right. Okay? Did they maybe use too much gas and not have enough left in the right, tank? Right, right, right. And so so kind of combining some of this research on deception and some of this research about going hard and that sort of thing. Um, and so in this study, whose name I won't say, say again, uh, they had 10 athletes, and they they had the 10 athletes do three simulated triathlons, uh, three simulated sprint distance triathlons, and they did the distances that I described just a minute ago, a 750-meter swim, a 20-kilometer bike, and a 5K run. Um, in the first one, they said, okay, just race it. Race it how to how you would normally race it. And in that, they got a baseline, right? So they measured the power on the bike, they measured the pace on the run, all that sort of thing, and they got their baseline. Then in the next two triathlon simulations they did, they increased their their cycling power. They made them cycle at 5% more power, mm-hmm. basically. Um, the difference was they only told them that their power was higher in one of the two subsequent triathlons. Okay. And so, so um, for, for, for one of them, they, they, they altered the power meters at such, such that it would read 5% lower. So it would be kind of back at their baseline level even though they were going 5% harder than they went during the baseline triathlon. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So, But they only did that in one. The other one, they said, okay, you need to go harder, you need to keep, and they, and they modified the machine such they had to go 5% harder. And so they made them go harder on the bike with that one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, they, and they told them they were they, they had the, the honest one. So anyway, on both of those, the athletes reported that the physical strain on the bike was higher. So they felt like they were going harder on the bike because they were. Um, but they felt the run was the same effort. Like, like, they didn't feel like going 5% harder on the bike made the run any harder, necessarily. Um, but here's the big one. During the honest retry, during the honest time that they went back through, during the time that they actually were telling them that they were 5% higher and they could see their power meters said 5 minutes higher, they went slower on the run. Um, whereas during the deception retry, during the time when they were still going 5% harder, but they thought they were going the same as the baseline, they actually went faster on the run. So going 5% harder on the bike 
when they didn't know they were going 5% hard on the bike, led to a faster run. And, of course, in turn would also lead to a faster bike and a faster overall time. Right? Interesting. Um, yeah. And so biking harder actually made them faster runners, provided that they didn't know that it was actually any harder. Mm-hmm. Right? And so when they thought it was harder, when they knew they were going 5% harder, they then got on the run and were like, oh, well, I went so hard on the bike now, I went that 5% harder, and there's no way I can run any faster, and they went slower. There's no way I can run when I ran in there in the baseline triathlon, so they ran slower. When they didn't know, they actually went faster, even though they had gone harder on the bike. Um, so, so in other words, like I say, when they knew that they were going harder, they slowed themselves down on the run, but when they didn't know they were going harder, they actually got faster. Um, so I'll be interested to hear you know your your takeaways, Patrick. Um, remember, of course, this is in a sprint triathlon, so don't go out and employ this in, a, in, a, in an Ironman or a half Ironman even. Um, but you know, one of the big takeaways is you're probably holding something back. <laughs> yeah, well, it speaks to the kind of brain body connection we have yeah. in perceived effort and in yeah. effort in general. Um, I know there have been races I've run where and this is kind of tangentially related, but where it's like some five, local five k, like a Brookhaven Bolt, mm-hmm. and it is impossible for me to run as fast as i can because mm-hmm. there's no adrenaline mm-hmm. there's no support mm-hmm. even if, from people i don't know you know there's no support at all and if there's no adrenaline if there's no um kind of external factors kind of pushing you forward mm-hmm. it's almost hard to get much faster than like a tempo pace mm-hmm. or a quicker tempo pace mm-hmm. um so that's my first reaction is it does speak to the brain body connection that we have and the idea that the brain really is a bit of an inhibitor or a governor that, mm-hmm. that kind of says, okay, you're done, we're shutting you down, mm-hmm. so yeah. we're going to send signals that say your legs are done, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that's, why, that's why doing a workout in practice can feel so much harder. One of the reasons why doing a workout in practice can feel so much harder than doing a workout during a race. Right. Um, you know, I, we all have these, uh, these workouts that we do that, that, are, that are race predictors, if you will, or you're supposed to put in a race-level effort in the workout. And I used to be terrible at those. I'm pretty good at them now. But like an FTP test, for example, on right. a bike. FTP test you take in the lab as you're just sitting there staring at a screen. That's hard to really get the same level of effort there as you would in a bike race. Yes. Or in a group ride in, in, with something else like that. So, so yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so hard, it's, it's not that it's physically hard. It's, it's, it's psychologically hard. Um, and, and I think this kind of, like you said, shed light more on that, that kind of brain-body connection, how your brain can hold you back. And I think, too, I definitely know there is something to be said for a positive feedback loop during a race mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I've had races where, hey, things are feeling good. I'm doing better than I thought. I'm going to hit my A goal. Mm-hmm. Things just, I tend to hit a flow state much more easily than when it's a grind. Yeah. Um, I do think there's something to be said for creating a positive feedback loop where you're thinking, man, I have a real goal I can meet here. This isn't just another race. This could be something special. And that positivity really does kind of create um, faster legs to some degree. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to temper that. I don't want this to sound like fairy, ta- fairy uh, tale land where if you just tell yourself you can do a three-minute mile, voila, there we go. Yeah. Um, but PR, PR or ER, you know, if, if, you, if you didn't puke, it didn't go hard enough. Yeah, no. I, no I, none I, of that, I, yeah. 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 Um, but we're talking about, you know, a one or two percent increase in your, or you know, increasing your speed or in your in your time. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly interesting to me. And what's fascinating is that it translates not only from running but also to the to the cycling, mm-hmm. which obviously require which your legs face more resistance mm-hmm. to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to generate more power, mm-hmm. you know, because you have to you know reach a higher speed, a level mm-hmm. of speed. So that's 
pretty interesting, and it tends to show that it's it is more of the brain body connection, not yeah. a purely physical matter. For sure, for sure. Tell us about yours, man. Yeah, and mine is kind of tangentially related in that. I was going to say, yeah, your, you, yours has a little bit of a relation to it. Um, yours was almost more about how we deceive others. In a way, mine is almost more about how you deceive yourself based on <laughs> others' presence. Um, so mine is titled, The Effects of Social Support on Strenuous Physical Exercise. So as we've talked about before, we are social creatures. We, meaning not just you and me, but we as in like all people, right? No man is an island. No woman is an island. Um... So, like I said, my study for this week is titled The Effects of Social Support on Strenuous Exercise. And it kind of wants to build on previous research, which has shown the presence of supportive partners leading to reductions in perceived pain. So, previous researchers said, hey, you know, you are, you run triathlons, please bring, you know, a close friend or relative to the lab. We'll test your maximum output on the, on the cycle, uh, on the bike. Why I say the cycle? On the bike, and we'll see how that affects your perceived effort compared to people who don't bring a significant other or a friend or a family member. Mm -hmm. And they found that those who had um, a companion in the room tended to um, perceive a lower amounts of effort for the same output. Which is incredible and so cool. Yeah, it's fascinating to think. And literally the other person was just standing there watching or, or cheering. Yeah. Um, so the researchers for this study looked at, or they hypothesized that perceptions of pain and physiological stress responses are effect indeed affected by social support. But what made this study different is you brought your companion, and then your companion left the room for the test. Okay. Okay? And then what the researchers asked the participants to do is, um, so first they had to warm up, and then they had uh, four 30-second maximum effort cycling bouts on an ergometer. Okay? So you warmed up, then you blasted yourself on the bike for 30 seconds, took a short break, 30 seconds, short break, etc. Um, and they had, they recruited people aged 18 to 49, and they recruited people who they described as uh, recreationally fit. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that means somebody who, you know, at least goes for some bike rides on the weekend, and not like, you know, a simple like ride to the park, but actual like training purposes, right. for right. training purposes. Yeah. Um, and some brought uh, what were described as people with a close connection, someone you depend on in a time of need, such as a friend, family member, or romantic partner. Then they were put to the test. Some had their companion with them, some did not. Um, and by the people who had their companion, they were there for the start and then left the room for the four maximum efforts. Okay. And what they found, this is interesting, was that the riders who had their companion with them they blasted out that first 30 seconds, and they outperformed the control group, who did not bring a companion. But then they had a steady and sharp decline after each, uh, within each uh, rep. So maybe they started out kind of like the Superman who can lift a car, you know, based on, you know, social support, social pressure, etc. And then they kind of slowly came back down to earth. Or I shouldn't say slowly, but sharply came back down to earth with, mm -hmm. with each... Um, passing rep. Meanwhile, those who did not have a companion, did not bring one at all, they were much more even keel from start to finish, which I thought was fascinating to think about. Yeah. So like I said, what made this one different is they weren't actually in the room with you. Right. So my first takeaway when I read this was, number one, it almost seems like they, they had the kind of social steroids, so to speak, that yeah. boosted their performance yeah. for that first rep because they still had that kind of presence of, of having that companion with them in the beginning but then it kind of slowly wore off over time. Wears off. That's exactly the phrase I have in mind. Like, it wears off. <laughs> right. Um, and then the other thing I thought that was interesting is it 
we talk a lot on this podcast about how you know f- the importance of finding a group, the importance of running in a group, the importance of cycling in a group, and about how a group can hold you accountable. Yeah, we did a whole podcast on it uh, right. a couple years ago. Yeah. And maybe this study suggests that you got to have the right people mm-hmm. so you don't almost blow yourself out to, A, impress them or meet their standards or kind of show your better self. Mm-hmm. But maybe you need a group of people that you can be vulnerable with. Mm-hmm. Um, that second takeaway is obviously a much bigger stretch. Mm-hmm. Both the takeaways I've just mentioned are, you know, long down the road, need, this needs a lot of study. But I thought this was really interesting. And it just goes to show that the more and more we study perceived effort and pushing yourself to the max, quote-unquote, the more we realize there almost is no such thing as a max because we don't know what the max is. It's a moving target yeah. based on a myriad of other factors. Mm-hmm. What about you? What were some of your takeaways from Yeah, this? no, like I said just a second ago, I, I, I think the, the, the thing that almost, almost kind of makes it funny is, mm-hmm. is like the wearing off effect. Like, right. like it's 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 like you know you get you get a touch and then and then it gives you that blast for that first one and then it wears off. Right. You know what I mean? And and I I also kind of wonder and this is this is not something the study accounted for I am certain, but I also wonder whether who the, and this is this is related to your second takeaway whether who the person is matters. Yep. You know, like like if I brought in my wife, for example, um, and 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 she saw me, and I got the touch, and she left. I probably wouldn't go out too hard, and the reason why is because um, because my wife's an experienced triathlete and an experienced endurance athlete, experienced cyclist, and 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 she's watched me race before, and she knows I tend to do fairly evenly, and so she wouldn't expect me to go blasting out and be in front of everybody at the start. She would expect me to be good at the finish. Right. Whereas if I brought my parents. You know, mm-hmm. and and I was like, oh yeah, and, and this is really good. My and and my dad was like, yeah, yeah, you're you're gonna beat all these people. I would probably feel more pressure to like go hard with my parents who didn't necessarily understand the strategies and vagaries of a race. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying, or or a maximal effort. Um, and so I, I'm certain that the, the 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 protocol didn't allow for that, but but I do wonder like, you know, who it is that you brought in with you what, what could change whether you went out too fast. Um, or, or, or how it is that, that, that they influenced your effort. Yeah, and you talked about their knowledge of endurance athletics. I would also add in, have they seen you during races before, right? Because right? Right. if it's maybe a coworker who's never seen you before, you almost may want to say, like, oh, yeah, I'll show you guys, like, right. why I run as much as I do. I'm going to yeah. show you how awesome I am. Exactly. Or somebody who's seen you run before, you're like, yeah, you, you get it. Yeah. I'm just going to do my thing. I don't have to prove anything to you. Yeah. At least not in the first... 30 seconds <laughs> you know um, yeah that's exactly what I'm saying um, mm-hmm. and so so I, I, th- I think that's kind of a very interesting aspect of the whole thing um, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, of a study um, that was done that we've talked about on the podcast before that showed that gender differences between the testers yep. can actually influence uh, your your the effort that you put in mm-hmm. and so so that, that when you're doing a, a rate of perceived exertion test with men, um, men will report lower rates of perceived exertion, i.e. they will say, oh, yeah, no, no, I'm not running that hard, I'm not going that hard, when when it's a female researcher asking them the question mm-hmm. um, than they will when it's a male researcher. A male researcher will say, you know, one to ten, how hard are you going? They'll be like, seven, you know. A female researcher asks them when they're going just as hard, according to all the physical markers, and they'll go, three, 
Yeah. I'm just jogging here. I got this. Yeah, yeah no exactly. problem. Yeah, so it reminds me of that one, but um, certainly, uh, you know, not only the, uh, the 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 vagaries of the of the mind body connection, but also the, uh, the the difficulties of conducting good scientific, solid exercise physiological research. So very good. Well, that'll do it for news and research, right, Patrick? That's it. All right, man. Well, thanks again for joining us, everybody. We appreciate your listening. We'll see you next time. And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Make sure that you reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Reach out to our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, at itlcoaching.com, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And don't forget about our other sponsor, Casey the Travel Planner. You can find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash MEV. You can drop her an email at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E travelplanner at gmail.com. Or just go to her website, caseytravelplanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.